Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall, and we're so glad that you found us today. Our guest on this episode is a third time returning guest. I believe he might be the first third time returning guest. Uh, we have with us Tony Wan. How are you doing today, Tony? I'm good, J.W. Thank you for having me on. I am so honored to be a uh, three-time three-peater. When we show. get to five, we'll do the uh, jacket with the five-time host or uh, guest, you know, kind of like Saturday Night Live. But uh, we're excited to be on number three here. Um, you are the former managing editor of Ed Surge, as my audience may know you. Um, and now you're the head of, of investor content at Reach Capital. Um, so we've got a new question we start off with here for season two of the show. And we like to ask, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Who am I? You mean I'm not my job? You are not your job, I hope. Okay. Uh, it can be a part of who you are, but <laughs> who are you and what do you love about what you do? Well, I think the answer to that changes day to day, week to week, but some of the more consistent identities that I would affiliate with are, I'm a gamer, I'm a runner, I'm a writer, and as of five months ago, I'm a father, first time father of a newborn. So. Um, that's added a lot of new dimensions uh, to my life and my day-to-day uh, -day habits. I love that. And congratulations. And now we'll have to get a every six-month update on uh, the new uh, fathering um, as you uh, continue to jump back on the show. Um, yeah, tell he us just learned to roll. He just learned to roll from <laughs> exactly. his back to his stomach, but not but not back on his back. So he's essentially like screaming and crying when he like flips on his, on his stomach and doesn't sleep. So that's the it'll, latest update. It'll be a few more days, possibly weeks, but uh, it'll be <laughs> wonderful when he gets the full rotation and terrifying as well. Right. All right, so that's kind of who you are. And again, that can obviously be fluid as, as the time goes on here. What do you love about what you do? I write. I get to write and share a lot of the things that me that you know me and my colleagues uh, encounter in the course of our work, whether it's market research, whether it's uh, perspectives uh, and our thesis on where the market is going. I think fundamentally, I like to learn about what's happening in this space, and writing is something that forces me to make sense of all the various convoluted thoughts in my head. So I think not only do we have a you know great team of um, colleagues who are very open and curious, um, but we're also, you know, pretty, I would say at this point, having done this for over a decade, you know, pretty smart about where the space is moving and on the cutting edge of what's next. I love it. And I'll just uh, read the title of your latest report U.S. EdTech's Roaring Twenties begin with $8.2 billion invested in 2021. Um, and that is a big number. And uh, the point of this episode is really to dive into um, your report, um, some of the nuances of it, and uh, go a little bit deeper. So uh, let's start, if you uh, will, just give us a little bit of the background on um, setting the table for the state of EdTech investment for 2021. So since 2015, I've been tallying U.S. EdTech numbers um, back when I was at EdSurge. And back in those days, I think that we'd all kind of, you know, be pretty jazzed when it surpassed a billion, you know, 1.2 billion. In 2020, I think we, uh, we surpassed $2 billion. 
Um, but when I looked at the numbers uh, from last year in 2021, it quadrupled to $8.2 billion. Uh, and this is just for US ed tech. And this is primarily for companies that are serving pre-K, uh, K-12, higher education, and the workforce. Now, you know, one can argue that there's a lot of adjacent sectors that you could consider into ed tech, but for the sake of consistency, um, we're just counting, you know, more or less the primarily K-12 and adult and early childhood companies. So essentially it quadrupled uh, the amount of investment capital that's been pouring into the US ed tech industry from uh, about $2.2 billion to $8.2 billion. And so, you know, that's a big bump. Um, to put it into context though, I think that every, every industry kind of saw a big boost. Um, I think that uh, according to PitchBook, all US venture backed companies raised something like $330 billion which is, you know, also um, you know, multitude increase uh, from the previous year. So, um, but that aside, you know, something that's worth pointing out is that in previous years, U.S. ed tech only accounted for maybe around one percent of all over of overall capital raised, but in 2021, it accounted for you know 2.4 percent. Um, you know, still kind of a blip, but you know, considering where it used to be and the fact that it's uh, essentially more than doubled, I think that it's a pretty big step forward in terms of the capital and interest that the sector is attracting. I can't wait to get to the end of the show to ask you what your predictions are moving forward, but we got to dive deeper into the numbers before we can get there. Um, tell us a little bit about where was the lion's share of this uh, $8.2 billion? Um, the lion's share um, are you know, from a number standpoint, you know, the, the top 20 to 21 biggest deals captured around like 70% of it. So, um, you know, the big deals will all will, will generally, you know, constitute a good chunk of the overall numbers. And when you take a look at the biggest uh, 21 deals um, of 2021, they pretty much span across the board um, from K-12 to higher ed to workforce and to the consumer. Um, and in corporate training, uh, the biggest deal went to what I would consider put in the workforce slash corporate training bucket. There's a company called Articulate um, that's used by enterprises to create training courses uh, for employees. Um, there's a company called Better Up that's uh, a, a coaching and leadership coaching platform that's used by uh, companies to help kind of level up their managers and their leadership. Um, to you know, really uh, kind of improve the uh, the team well being uh, of their staff. So uh, this is fairly consistent, I think, with uh, previous years. Um, the workforce sector generally has is considered to be a little bit more, uh, you know, generous with the wallets when it comes to uh, upskilling and retraining their staff. Um, and so that's the lion's share. Um, but we also saw a lot of companies in the K-12 space uh, kind of take off. Um, and even companies that were selling their uh, two schools and institutions, uh, which historically has not always been the most attractive space for investors to put the chips in. Um, but, you know, there's a confluence of forces, um, of course, uh, some of which were accelerated by the pandemic that really, um, you know, attracted all the capital. Um, and, you know, I would venture to say that some of these digital, uh, these, these digital transformations that's happening in K-12 and higher ed are things that may continue uh, past the pandemic so that, um, you know, the digital, digital adoption isn't just a one-time pandemic bump. Makes sense. And we talk about a lot on this show um, and, and other shows 
that the seems like we finally turned the corner of technology and ed tech becoming a real part of the core of education, whereas before the last 20 years, it was seen more as a supplement uh, that you're adding in. And, and it sounds like that's um, been ingrained into the educators and the schools and the districts over the last two years of the pandemic. But now it's also being confirmed by the markets, by the uh, economic investments, that this is going to be you know, where uh, a lot of the uh, investment is going to be, not just in the last two years, but in the years moving forward, which is exciting to see. Yeah, I think the pandemic really accelerated adoption of digital tools. And um, of course, in a way that was uh, pretty haphazard and rushed and uneven um, in, in the early years. But I think what it's done is it, it's kind of shown not only what's not only its limits, but also what's possible. I think that no one would venture to say that technology is, you know, you know, ed tech is a really uh, one-to-one replacement for in-person interactions. And a lot of these serendipitous interactions that you just have you know, like in the course of a school day or in the classroom, um, I think you know, we, we can all pretend that it's not you know, the role of technology. Um, but we've also, but hopefully, you know, I think what it's shown is that it can really extend the kinds of supports that schools and teachers and students need, whether it's uh, teletherapy or mental health, or whether it's uh, tutoring services, or whether it's uh, extracurricular, um, you know, classes uh, revolving around, uh, you know, your hobbies or your interests to keep kids engaged and interacting, um, you know, in live online classes. So I hope that, you know, through all this experience, you know, through, through, through all these upheaval of their really rushed adoption of technology in the past two or three years that we are at least more sensible around, you know, the proper place uh, and kind of value of, of ed tech, um, at least in the K-12 and higher education setting. Yeah, and I really like the, um, there's a tutoring company out there or um, a substitute um, matching company out there that's digital that helps match um, substitutes in specific content areas, maybe high school algebra. Um, and they were around before the pandemic, but I think they really exploded during the pandemic. And now uh, schools are finding that maybe it's better to have an on-campus facilitator in the classroom, but to zoom in a content expert, a content expert, sorry, that uh, those students don't miss that day of algebra or you know whatever kind of higher level course. Um, it's just fun to see the innovation took place and it was messy for sure in the last two years, but now it's starting to kind of shake down and people are starting to figure out, okay, this was good. We need to keep making it better moving forward um, versus the fear was, okay, we put up with technology for two years and now we want to go right back to where we were before the pandemic, which was you know less technology. I think we're, we're in a good spot uh, moving forward here. I wonder if we yeah. have one other, oh, go ahead. I think one of the things uh, that's going to become kind of, I don't know, more, 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 not necessarily more clear, but like a parallel I see is that, um, you know, I think of the role of schools as kind of a reflection of our work and our workplace and our society. And as we've seen how the workforce has kind of adapted to support remote work environments, um, you know, like we should see a similar or parallel shift happening in teaching and learning as well. Um, you know, I think that the remote workforce, I think for the most part, I feel like, you know, when done well, like people are still getting their jobs done. Um, and there are, of course, downsides, right? Similar to school about missing some of your, you know, coffee, you know, your coffee chats or kind of the hallway banter. Um, but 
you know, if we're going to prepare students, you know, for the workforce and where things are going, uh, where society in general is going, I think it just behooves us to kind of be more flexible and more creative and adaptive and, uh, you know, rethinking how teaching and learning happens within, you know, within schools in a way that kind of mirrors some of these changes we're seeing in, in, in the workplace. I love that. And that's actually where I was going back to about the, um, the upskilling, the retraining, uh, the great resignation uh, that companies are really feeling that they need to provide that flexible work environment, that additional training and that additional investment into their people or they may leave. And, and so it's nice to see that parallel between the workforce uh, environment changing and schools, K-12 and higher ed, hopefully um, not lagging behind five or 10 years, but actually trying to kind of be in lockstep a little bit more so that students are prepared when they get out uh, into the real world uh, that this uh, new you know, transformation isn't a, a foreign concept to them, that they've got uh, you know, these tools and abilities to learn how to learn and to really be a lifelong learner is a, is a must-have now. It's not a only for the select few, right, to keep going on in some formal higher education post, uh, you know, uh, uh, college. That really is something that everyone is going to need to be able to upskill and reskill um, throughout their lives because the jobs are going to be changing, you know, faster than we can keep up otherwise. Yeah, I think um, you know one of the points that I may uh, shared in, in, in the piece is that, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's a quote that from uh, Andreessen Horowitz partner that every company will become a fintech company. Uh, and I think in a similar sphere, you know, I think every company will be an edtech company, um, you know, based, you know, following up on, you know, the points you shared around, like just the, the premium on, on retaining and retraining employees and, um, the priority it is for leaders these days to make sure that, um, you know, they're attracting and keeping, you know, talented employees in their place and making sure that they have proper avenues and opportunities to continue kind of skilling up uh, and giving them a reason to, to stay with one company versus, you know, job hopping every two or three years. Um, you know, I think that hire, you know, I used to hire uh, back in my days at EdSurge and it was probably one of the, my, the least enjoyable part, the enjoyable part, um, not because of the talented, you know, the, the pool of candidates I've had to fed, but it was just, um, it kind of just felt like kind of constantly starting over, right? When you are like replacing, you know, good, uh, good people. So, so yeah, you know, like from a company standpoint, it behooves all companies to think about themselves in, as an tech company in that vein. Absolutely. And market scale, they like to say education is undefeated. You can almost never go wrong investing in your people with education and, and providing more opportunities, whether that's internal or external, um, you know, people really appreciate it. And, uh, and it's again, become a necessity. Um, all right. So to shift back to uh, the next area of the report, um, what is fueling this unprecedented level of funding? The pandemic bump, for sure. Um, I think that outside of tech, just in tech, uh, tech in general, um, the acceleration of digital adoption and services has kind of led to a groundswell of capital, um, you know, for the for the tech sector broadly in general. And I think what it has done is that it's kind of attracted uh, some of the biggest funds in the world. Um, you know, some of these growth funds like your Andreessen's, your uh, your SoftBanks, your Tigers to um, you know really consider this sector um, in ways that perhaps they were a little bit hesitant or skittish about before. Um, 
what it's done is that we've seen you know bigger funds come in at earlier you know come in at earlier stages um generally with uh you know offering bigger uh bigger check sizes at, at bigger valuations uh and so i think that's fueled a lot of the uh, the numbers uh that you're seeing now i think that what's uh, also what's tracking them is that we're seeing a lot more market liquidity um in the tech sector I think in previous decades, uh, one of the reasons why tech investors tended to, um, you know, be cautious about this was that you didn't really see many big exits in the form of uh, big uh, mergers and acquisitions or IPOs, for instance. But in 2021, we saw six uh, uh, tech companies go public in, in 2021, which is more than the total of uh, in the previous decade. Right. So think about that one year, one year surpassing, you know, the previous 10 years in terms of, uh, you know, um, public market exits. So, um, you know, and that's uh, that's a, that's one of the signals that investors are looking for. Like, you know, uh, am I going to get a big bang for my buck? Uh, and so I think these six IPOs uh, certainly help fuel a lot of the enthusiasm and capital that followed. Um, you know, we also saw in the private sector, uh, in the private markets, that M&A multiples and, tra and transaction values were also up uh, as well. And so that's, uh, you know, that's another, you know, that's the other side of the coin in the, in the exits uh, and liquidity, um, in the exit and liquidity of kind of, uh, you know, factors that kind of really fueled a lot of uh, capital and enthusiasm in this market. And just to look at the average deal size, there's a lot of great uh, numbers in your uh, report. I don't expect you to know them all off the top of your head, but um, I was just looking at the Series C and beyond, and it's proportionate in the seed and the Series A and B. But from 2017 to 2021, um, on the big Series C and beyond, 50 million um 34 dropped in 18 and then up to 57 and then 54 so fairly steady and then 2020 to 2021 jumped from 54 to 110 um you know just a massive jump and i, I think that uh, speaks to um the excitement of investors you know getting those exits um is that now we're at the final question uh is that sustainable uh to continue to grow that that much that fast and and what's next for 2022 uh, are we going to flatten out? Are we going to keep growing or somewhere in between? Um, so if we 4X in 2021 over 2020, then maybe we'll 4X again in 2022, and this will be a $32 billion, uh, you know, headline next next time we chat. But, you know, I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, I think that um, for the first 11 months of 2021, you know, the markets, especially the tech sector was doing very, very well. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of expectations built into um, some of the soaring stock prices and numbers that you saw. But, uh, you know, starting in December, right, I think the broader public markets actually like, you know, took a pause and, you know, this kind of maybe recalibrated itself, right? The public market started dipping, you know, towards the end of 2021 and I think throughout January. Um, a lot of the sector, uh, you know, just across tech and I would say across most industries just uh, took a hit. Um, some of that is due to macroeconomic factors around, uh, you know, inflation is at all time high and interest rates are projected to uh, bump up later this year. Uh, and that's like sent stock prices tumbling like across the board, especially in tech uh, and especially in, 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 in ed tech. Um, and so 
you know, I don't know, you know, this, this gap between private valuations and public valuations um, is, you know, it may temper, you know, enthusiasm and, you know, around the sector a little bit. Um, I think we've already seen some reports that investors are going back to, you know, to renegotiate certain terms at lower valuations, uh, kind of in reaction, in response to what we've seen uh, in, in, in the public market. So, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that interest and enthusiasm in this space has diminished, has dimmed. I think if anything, it's stronger than ever. There are, uh, you know, some emerging, you know, trends around like Web3 um, that I think is, and, you know, the, the, the crypto space that I think is, uh, you know, has overlaps with the edtech industry that's going to attract a lot of attention as well. I think what's going to be tempered are, are some of the valuations and, and the figures that we've seen and maybe the round sizes kind of adjust themselves and uh, in response. And, and I'll throw my thoughts in there and you can tell me if I'm way off or if there's a chance I'm right, but it did, it did feel last year, especially last summer, in the kind of height of volume of activity, there was almost a sense of uh, doing deals just to do deals and not be left out. Um, and, it, and it feels like that's maybe cooled off a little bit to where there are still gonna be some big deals in 22, but they may be a little more tempered and a little more um, solid, if you will, instead of this kind of seems like bandwagon that a lot of uh, investors jumped on last year. Am I yeah, in the ballpark on that or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we call it FOMO investing. Um, you don't want to, you know, you know, you don't want to miss out on what could be the next hot thing. Uh, and then when, you know, and then, and then when you see six companies go public and when you see like billion dollar transactions, you know, it can really kind of, you know, mentally kind of, you know, make you feel, a little, you know, feel a little jealous, right. Or a little bit, you know, you don't want to be left out of, of, of the club. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like, Another thing that we've seen, um, and there was a report on this in TechCrunch, was that some of the revenue, the revenues for companies that are raising money, um, you know, in the past, you know, you had to meet a certain, you were expected to be generating, you know, a certain threshold of revenue before you raise your seed or Series A. Um, but last year, you know, the expectations like went down. So like you didn't have to show traction, at least revenue traction before being able to close um, around. Um, and, you know, that is a sign of, um, you know, you know, frothiness, you know, some might yeah. say, and, you know, I think that I hope, you know, I, I think, and I hope that, you know, uh, you know, the market is a little bit more astute, uh, around, you know, making sure that there are certain fundamentals that are being checked and, you know, diligence that is being done, um, in this in this space. So I don't know if I'm supposed to say that as an investor because I'm supposed to, you know, always, go for the higher numbers, but, um, you know, I consider myself kind of a realist, right. In terms of, um, you know, what are your business fundamentals and benchmarks? Yeah. And it's interesting to see historically in a tech investment, <clears throat> it's been a, a smaller group of players that are very focused on education. Um, even a, a contingency of very mission driven, um, investors that are, you know, in it maybe a little more long-term, maybe a little more altruistic. How do you see that shaking out in 2022? Are we still going to have a good mix of these larger investors as well as the, the investors that have been there all along? I think so. I mean, I think before there used to be a false um, association that, you know, if you were a really mission-oriented education investor, 
um, that sometimes, you know, having the greatest impact on teachers and learners will come at the expense of like generating like huge returns, um, you know, for yourself or for your LPs. And um, I think that's like a false dichotomy. Um, I think these days, um, especially with um, companies that are able to sell both to schools and both to consumers, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just seeing like this broad consumer uptake of, you know, educational services and tools like across the board. Um, and so I think that this really breaking down this little, you know, barrier between institution, uh, you know, B2B and B2C, um, you know, markets is really um, driving, you know, a lot of the growth of, you know, some of the companies, including some of the portfolio that we've seen. Um, and I think it's just going to show that, you know, hand in hand, you know, mission, you know, mission and returns, you know, you can do that hand in hand, like, you know, at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're right too. the expanding market from pre-K to gray um, and the consumer market, you know, companies like Duolingo are, are used in schools, but they're also used around the world by adults and, and everyone else. So I think you're going to see more of that type of um, opening of the market beyond just the K-12, which is exciting. Um, to see as well. So well, we got one last question because this uh, acquisition came in after the report, I believe. Um, but give us uh, any insights you can into the recent purchase of uh, Credly by Pearson. Um, have you got, had even had a chance to really dive into that one much yet? I uh, took a look. Uh, you know, I, I certainly like saw the press release and, you know, I think that it's in it feels like a natural evolution of where Pearson like uh, kind of wants to focus on, um, you know, previous, you know, you know, in, in the past decade, Pearson really uh, shed a lot of its um, kind of textbooks and courseware businesses. You know, they sold off a lot of assets uh, over the past couple of years or past uh, past uh, past decade. And they're really focusing on consumer, uh, you know, trying to, you know, consumer now, you know, they're, uh, current CEO Andy Bird is a former Disney executive, uh, and so you know I, I, I see this as kind of a focus on the workforce side, you know, of their um, of the consumer orientation. I think Pearson was a previous investor in Credly, so you know, presumably they know that business very well and they know what value it, it adds. Um, and so, yeah, I think like it's an interesting move by by Pearson as it kind of. Um, tries to figure out like where in the education market it wants to be, right? It used to be, you know, the, used to be the BMF. It used to be, you know, one either the biggest education company in the world. Uh, and now with it kind of maybe accepting the fact that it's not going to be everything to everyone. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a part of their ongoing transformation that started, since, you know, ever since, um, you know, their previous CEO, John Fallon, you know, came on board and has since left. And last question, follow up on that. Is it a good sign for 2022? That was, there weren't really many other big deals in, in January, the first part of this year. Uh, but this was a fairly good sized deal and, and somewhat unexpected, it seems. Um, is this kind of keeping um, EdTech investment on the map here in the first quarter uh, going into uh, the first half of this year? Uh, yeah, there was there's another one that kind of came to mind that um, forgot, uh, that I mentioned. Um, Everify was acquired uh, by Blackbaud, you know, a publicly traded company for seven hundred fifty million seven hundred fifty million dollars. I think back in January. So 
you know, this consolidation of, um, you know, of educational services to, you know, within broader kind of cloud software companies uh, with some overlap and mission alignment, you know, I think these deals are still going to happen, right? You know, you've had players who've had time to grow really big uh, over the past decade, uh, especially in the past couple of years. And I think they're going to be very attractive. It will remain to be, you know, attractive targets. So I think uh, the Credly was around 200 million. So that gets us close to the first billion right there. Uh, and it's not even uh, not even Valentine's Day yet. Yeah, I know. There'll Pretty be, exciting. There'll be more to come, definitely on, more, on, the, on the exit more front. To come. I love it. Well, Tony, as usual, thank you so much for joining us, sharing some deeper insights to all my listeners. Uh, go out and uh, read the report. Um, you won't be uh, disappointed. It'll keep you in the know. And uh, we'll be very excited to have you back on in uh, about five or six months to give us a mid-year update. And, uh, and then, of course, the end of 22 will be here before we know it. Thank you again so much, Tony, for uh, joining this episode. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, JW. Um, maybe the next time I'm on, we'll start talking about, you know, we'll be talking about in the teens in terms of the billions that the sector is seeing. But we shall see. We shall see. And again, thank you to my audience for listening as usual. Um, please check out our uh, website with all of the episodes as well as all of the uh, places like Spotify and Apple and Google where you can listen each week to our show. Um, have a great rest of uh, your week and always, always keep learning.